Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, this week with a message entitled, The Power of the Holy Spirit. So let's turn together in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want you to imagine one of those old motorcycles, the kind that when motorcycles were first invented, they were really just bicycles with engines mounted onto them. They had bicycle pedals with a chain going from the pedals to the back wheel, just like any other bike, but you could pedal them fast enough to start the engine. And then a motor would take over with a leather belt on the other side from the chain of the bicycle going to the same back wheel. And then you go faster and you don't have to pedal. Not much faster, but it was good to get a bit of rest while the engine rather than your legs did the work. Now fast forward to the present era. Imagine someone could be transported from that time when the first motorcycles were made into the future and shown the new super bikes that will run over 300 kilometers an hour. Imagine that individual asking, but where are the pedals? And you have to explain if you knew how much power was there and the technology behind it, you would not be asking about pedals. I think a great many Christians try to live their lives by their own power. They foolishly assume that they came to Christ by their own power, and they go on to believe that they must live out the Christian life as best they can by trying as hard as they can, which is, by the way, their own power. They know there's a Holy Spirit, but they have not examined who He is, what He does, and what He provides the believer— nor do they have even the slightest inclination of how to access the power of the Holy Spirit. They're like someone who is intent on pedaling a modern-day superbike. It doesn't work well for them. And you might say, well, nice illustration, but practically, what does that mean? What kind of power, and how do we access that? Now, if you've been following this brief topical series on the Holy Spirit, you'll remember that we began by tracing the activity of the Spirit in the Old Testament. We noticed that there is a clear testimony of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Old Testament saints, even to the point that on several occasions, we are told that the Holy Spirit indwelt Old Testament believers. We noticed that by faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war. We noticed that everything from leadership to craftsmanship to the power to prophesy to the ability to walk with God was all done by the Holy Spirit. But when we noticed that Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit in a way that the saints of old had never experienced, nor had they known, theirs was like the first motorcycles, if you will. It was a less powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit was less powerful in their day. It means that until then, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to God's people. Jesus said that in John 7, 39. We took that to mean that he had not been given in the manner that he would be given after Pentecost. It was not until the new covenant was introduced that the Holy Spirit would be fully poured out. But Jesus promised something more, greater, superior to what was experienced in times past. Now, even though this series on the Holy Spirit is a topical one, there are several passages of Scripture that become key or anchor points as we go along. One of those is found in Acts 1 verse 8. 
There Jesus, after having given the disciples the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole world, tells them not to leave Jerusalem until they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then, in Acts 1 verse 8, he makes the following promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What he is promising is a new era, the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will be accompanied by a power that has not been known. Now, we might ask, how can we receive a greater power than that which was received in the Old Testament? Should we receive something greater than Moses, who inflicted 10 plagues on Egypt and reduced the world's superpower into whimpering submission to God, and then divided the Red Sea for the people of God to cross over? Could they do more than Joshua, who saw the walls of Jericho come down at the command of God? More than David and Solomon, who realized the promise made to Abraham so that Israel inhabited all the land that he had promised them? What could be greater than Elijah calling down the fire of God onto an altar on Mount Carmel and proving that the Lord is God? Or what could be greater than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking through a furnace with a fire that killed men who came too close? What kind of greater power could possibly be available to believers who witnessed the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit with the coming of Pentecost? Now, I think this to be a searching question. I say this because so many simply assume that the power of the Holy Spirit is to do miracles, but as we have seen, there were plenty of those in the Old Testament. If Old Testament believers had a less powerful experience of the Holy Spirit in their dispensation, are we simply to assume that more power means parting 10 Red Seas or maybe an ocean? I mean, that seems highly unlikely. So to answer the question of what Jesus meant by power, we must look at the actual context of Jesus' statement. Look again at Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Clearly, from this passage, there is a promise of the power to not only declare the gospel, but to make men into disciples. One must understand the context. According to Acts 1.15, the company of followers was then at 120 persons. They were called upon to preach the gospel to all nations, and that task seems impossible. So let me share what is unique about the power that has been given to believers after Pentecost. Today, I want to share four elements of the work of the Holy Spirit, which was unknown in the Old Testament. Then for the rest of this week, I want to speak about other unique aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in the age of the Spirit, which will include the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, our familiarity with the Word of God, and the community of the Spirit, which is the Church of Jesus Christ. Never before had the Holy Spirit created a church made of people from every language and nation under heaven. But for today... Let's begin by noticing four elements of the work of the Spirit which was unknown in other generations. Here's the first of them. The Holy Spirit now gives power to be witnesses of Jesus and his gospel. You might say, well, true, that's unique to us. But then again, how could the Old Testament saints witness to the work of Jesus when Jesus had not yet been given? Well, that's true, but consider it from the perspective of evangelism. Yes, it is true that in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who came to faith in the God of Israel. When Israel left Egypt, for instance, according to Exodus 12, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went along with them, meaning that Egyptians and others joined to the God of Israel. So we see a kind of Gentile evangelism, if you will. 
But because all Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, we have to assume that these Gentiles rebelled as well as everybody else so that we might question their level of faith and whether this really was a conversion after all. We know of Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, a genuine conversion. Of Ruth, the Moabite woman in Bethlehem, again, a genuine conversion. We know that the Queen of Sheba journeyed to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And we know that at the dedication of the temple, Solomon, as a part of his prayer, prayed, When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays to this house, then hear from heaven and do all for which the foreigner asks in order that all the peoples on the earth may fear you. We know of Nahum and the Syrian washing in the waters of Jordan, being healed of his leprosy and coming to love the God of Israel. He is undoubtedly a genuine convert. There are other examples that speak of Gentile conversion. But in all of these cases, they come to Israel. Israel does not go to them. But in Acts, the idea of going out and seeking the lost from both the Jews and the Gentiles was altogether missing in the Old Testament. Furthermore, the number of Gentile converts remained small in the Old Testament, a minority. But with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, something altogether unheard of happens. God's people are commanded to go out to them and not only to call people to be reconciled to God through Jesus, but the promise is given that they would be overwhelmingly successful. Remember Peter and Jesus in his fishing boat? Put your nets down. Peter says, you know, I've been fishing all night. I've caught nothing. And then out of sheer obedience, he does what Jesus asked, and the nets are so full they're about to break. And Jesus says, don't fear. I have a new job description for you. From now on, you're going to be catching men. And catch them he did. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and 3,000 souls are converted and are baptized. Such a thing never happened in the Old Testament. You might defeat your enemies, but you rarely converted them. Indeed, the book of Acts is the proof that Pentecost did indeed give early Christians power to do that which was unthinkable. Acts 2.47, the Lord adds to the church every day. Acts 8, Samaritans are converted. Acts 10, Gentiles are converted, and so forth. And when we come back, we'll look at more examples of unheard of power after the day of Pentecost. Beginning March 6th, we'll be introducing a new, exciting video-based ministry program called Truth and Life Today. Truth and Life Today is a new venture designed to give Dr. Newfeld the opportunity to speak directly to the many Bible and Christian life questions we receive from our listeners every day. Now you'll get the chance to hear and see Dr. Newfeld answer your questions. Truth and Life Today will be released every Monday at truthandlifetoday.com. There you'll also have the opportunity to send in your questions to Dr. Newfeld for a future episode. So make sure to join us every Monday or check out any of our previously broadcast episodes at any time, all at truthandlifetoday.com. And to receive more information about all the Bible teaching resources, events, and activities taking place for Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've noticed that when Jesus promised the early church that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them, that those first disciples did things that no one had ever done before. 
Indeed, it was thought of as unthinkable that such a thing could be done. They were turning the world upside down by preaching the gospel and winning an unprecedented number of men and women of faith. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and in consequence, the new converts were winning men and women to Christ. But other unprecedented things were also happening. I spoke of four elements of the work of the Spirit, which had been unknown in previous generations. Here now is the second. The Holy Spirit now gives power for victory over sin. There is a new ethic, if you will, something unheard of that began to happen in the early church. Acts 2, 42 to 46, tells us of the life of that first church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. As most Christians know, there is no biblical mandate to live communal lives. But something remarkable happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come. Peter had preached a remarkable sermon. 3,000 people came to Christ, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope was upon them. Perhaps Christ would return immediately. They didn't know. And they weren't going home, for this was an opportunity to declare the gospel. A critical mass of people was absolutely necessary to sustain the new Jesus movement. And how do these people stay together? They are from other places, and to stay in Jerusalem is not economically possible. And the answer became obvious. People would have to pool their resources and make a considerable sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, and they did. They sold houses and lands for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the newly formed church. And with this, a new ethic was developing. People were saying, look how they love each other, and look how they love Christ. But how is this selfless living possible? People don't naturally do this. Later, Paul would say in Romans 6.11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And then later in verse 14, he would say, Sin will have no dominion over you. And then later again in Romans 8, Paul would explain this principle more fully. In verse 2, Paul would say, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The new ethic that we read of in the New Testament comes from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Of course, the Holy Spirit gave the Old Testament saints the ability to live as men and women of righteousness, but now comes something new. This new thing is the power to die with Christ and to live for his glory, dead to sin, alive to Christ. Well, there's so much more I could say about that, but I mentioned the power to witness, the power to have victory over sin that was unknown before. Now comes a third element of the work of the Spirit not known to other generations. The Holy Spirit now gives power over Satan. You might have noticed that Satan is spoken of in the Old Testament, but infrequently. The book of Job mentions him. First Chronicles mentions that it was he who incited David to sin. The book of Zechariah mentions him as the one who accuses or brings accusations against God's people. Evil and harmful spirits are also mentioned in several other places in the Old Testament. But there is one passage of Scripture that has fascinated me for some time. Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 speaks of Israel's fascination with idols. It says, they sacrificed to demons. 
That same theme is carried forward in Leviticus 17, verse 7. There it says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. It seems that the history of idolatry in the Old Testament is a history of Satan and demon worship. The gods around Israel are, in fact, demons. Now, once we realize that, we might see the great spiritual warfare that forms the basis of Old Testament wars. But, and this is key, no one in the Old Testament was capable of driving the demons out. Elijah on Mount Carmel could prove them to be a fraud. Moses could prove that the power of the God of Israel was greater than theirs, as the magicians of Egypt were unable to replicate that which was done through Moses. David would fight demonic people and defeat them, but no one drove them away. That is, until Jesus showed up. The demons shrieked and fled. And not only when Jesus showed up, his followers would do the same. Acts 16 tells of Paul in Philippi, and a slave girl, possessed by a spirit, began to annoy Paul, and he says to the demon, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And the demons fled. I wonder if you've ever noticed that countries that have been under the preaching of the gospel for a long time tend to have fewer demons than countries where the gospel has not been heard. And that's because the demons have been driven out. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 says that we do not wage war according to the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6, 11 says that we put on the whole armor of God, and when we do, we are able to make a stand against the devil. And 1 John 4, when it speaks of evil spirits, false prophets, and the Antichrist, says in verse 4, little children... You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Here's a wonderful truth. Christians do not need to fear Satan. We do not need to be spooked by demons or overwhelmed by their power. While it is true, as John puts it, we are but little children. Yet through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been given strong weapons for our warfare. And because of that, we not only resist the devil, but as James 4, 7 reminds us, he will flee from us. So let's review. None of the Old Testament saints were given the power to call the lost to come and be saved. None of them were given the power to do so thoroughly defeat the power of the flesh. And none of them were given the power to defeat Satan and cause demons to flee. The power that descended from heaven on Pentecost was not just greater than what the Old Testament saints had known. It was not just like having more horsepower in your motor. Rather, it was a kind of power that had never been experienced before. But there's one more element of the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that was unknown in the Old Testament. It is that the Holy Spirit now gives power for gifts unto ministry. Now, because I'm going to discuss the gifts of the Holy Spirit more thoroughly two days from now, I'm not going to add any more to that, only to draw our attention to it. But I do want us to understand ourselves within this context. We came to Christ because the power of the Holy Spirit drew us. We declare Christ and win others through the power of the Holy Spirit. We learn to live faithfully, submitting ourselves to the will of Christ and growing in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We defeat Satan and lay his kingdom in ruins by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are given gifts to effectively minister the grace of Christ to others by the power of the Holy Spirit. How sad it is when believers fail to understand that which has been given. 
You know, in a previous program, I mentioned a wealthy art collector who did not realize that the painting he so desperately desired was a painting he had purchased years ago and had forgotten in an old warehouse. Let me put it plainly. The life of power you so desperately want was purchased by Christ, and that power came to you at your conversion, as you were not only saved, but you were baptized into the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show you what that is and what you've received, and ask Him to empower you afresh through a fresh infilling of His Spirit. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray in Christ's name for all those who are believers in Christ who are listening but have forgotten the Holy Spirit. I pray, O Lord God, that we would open our eyes to a world that we have hardly even heard about. Would you come and infill your people afresh? Would you fill us in such a way that we would have eyes to see the power that you have provided for everyone who believes? And O Lord God, through us, would you work your mighty power so that the world might hear and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John, I think this is a powerful message about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, The reality is, I think, that regardless of what we do or who we are or, or how we're working out our walk with Christ, a follower of Jesus really can't survive without the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that truth should drive us to prayer. Um, how important it is for us to always come before the Lord and to say, Lord, I, I am unable to do that which you've commanded me. I'm, I'm unable to fulfill a ministry. I, I'm unable to even find joy in my own life. So come, Holy Spirit, and empower me afresh. I mean, those, are, those I think, are the kind of things that we've been praying all of the time. Now, I wonder, do you have a word of encouragement for those that are feeling overwhelmed or downcast right now? Things have been difficult for a long time. Yeah, especially for those that are struggling with an an ongoing sin in in their life. And if that's you and you're kind of feeling like, I just feel like giving up. I just keep failing all of the time. And what's the point anymore? And, And here's my word to you. I mean, first, understand that most likely the battle that you've been engaging against a sin has been done in your own strength. I mean, you've recommitted yourself. You've redoubled your efforts. Uh, you're, you're committed to, to try harder. And the more that you try, the more that you keep failing. Please learn from that and come to the Lord and say, I've given it my best effort and I just can't. But I agree with you that it's still sin. And then say, Lord, just, just fill me with your Holy Spirit. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, I think, gives us this, this God-focused ability in our lives. We, we begin to focus on him and his glory. And suddenly, as the you know, old hymn says, the things of this earth become strangely dim. Amen. Thanks for those words of encouragement, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back by popular demand, Back to the Bible Canada is announcing our second Israel Experience Tour scheduled for May 2018. There's plenty of time to plan for this trip to the Promised Land, a trip of a lifetime. Join the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests, and much more. 
The initial Israel experience was a sold-out tour. In fact, an additional coach was added. So although it's a year away, now is time to register and avoid disappointment. Join us in Tiberias, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Mount of Beatitudes, the village of Nazareth, the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Masada, Qumran, the Dead Sea, and the list goes on. And at each location, be inspired by the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. Check out all the details today at backtothebible.ca or call us for more at 1-800-663-2425.